Good afternoon. If you're listening to us live uh, today on The Scramble, we'll be telling three stories of crime and sometimes of punishment. Our first story does have to do very much with the question of punishment. Uh, Later on in the show, we'll be talking about the murder spike in Hartford, uh, the spike in the murder rate. Uh, And then we'll be telling you several stories of crime in New Haven, uh, several stories of mysterious and and, and disturbing uh, crime in New Haven. So... Uh, sorry to be uh, beginning and ending on such grim notes, but that's just sort of where things are today. Uh, today is July 20th, July 22nd in Norway. I, I would imagine can only be one thing and probably will only be one thing for many years to come, and that is the anniversary uh, of the massacre uh, of 77 people in 2011. Uh, this was the massacre committed by Anders Bering Breivik, uh, and he is, uh, of course, in prison now. Uh, and we uh, learn with the, this terrible anniversary uh, close on the horizon, uh, we learn that he has been granted by Oslo University uh, a spot in its politics program. This is something that prisoners in Norway um, do have the right to if they qualify, and he apparently has qualified. Um, I want to have a slightly larger conversation than just about that one, and uh, we're so fortunate and very honored today to have with us uh, Asni Seierstad. She is the author of One of Us, the story of Anders Breivik and the massacre in Norway. Uh, it, this is an amazing book. Just allow me anyway to uh, heap my cup full of praise onto a book that's already been praised every way a book can possibly be praised. It's a remarkable uh, convergence uh, of the human stories of some of the victims uh, of Breivik and then the human story of Breivik himself and then the story of Norway, uh, a nation that prides itself with some legitimacy uh, on its enlightenment and, and on its ability to respond with uh, with humanity. Uh, the challenge for this nation to respond with humanity uh, to something so inhuman uh, as this massacre. So, uh, first of all, welcome to our show, Asna Seierstad. Thank you. Um, I'm going to begin with something that the uh, Prime Minister of Norway says uh, when he faces the nation uh, after this terrible crime. Uh, he, he says this thing, which you say almost became a kind of mantra uh, for Norway. He, he said, we are a small country, but we are a proud people. We are still shaken by what has happened to us, but we will never relinquish our values. Our answer is more democracy more openness, and more humanity, but never naivety. So tell us, what what, what did he mean by that, especially those last words, never naivety? What what was the message he was sending? I think he meant that to to have an open, tolerant society where there's an easy access to government, to high officials, to, you know, there's equality, there's few fences in Norway. The few, you, you would never find any houses behind barred, you know, wires and, and uh, gated communities, things like that. So it's an open society in that aspect. But it doesn't mean that we can, uh, you know, we, we need uh, to have a police force that war- works, that um, terror is part of this world now. And, and in Norway, our only terror attack happened from a person from within, from one of us. So um, the fact that we have little security in this country, uh, it should not be, uh, you know, confused with the fact that we are naive. I suppose that was what he meant. Yes. Well, four four years later, how different is Norwegian society? Did this crime, this crime of such magnitude, I mean, really, this is the worst shooting spree in in recorded human history, as far as I know. Um, Did it change 
the, the, the texture of Norwegian life? Well, to be honest, I will have to say no if I have to give an answer. Of course, historians will tell, you know, it's too early to say anything. Mm -hmm. But um, it's like, uh, yes, there is a bit more security. It is. Uh, government officials, ministers, um, like the parliament, there are there are more gates because of this, and 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 more uh, fences, um, but not noticeable. Uh, but on the whole, it's like this was an action by one man, and if he had been able to change the whole. You know, the whole of Norway, the debate, the discussions, the, the way, the values, uh, how we view ourselves, it would have been, you know, it would have been a country uh, that stood on a very little, you know, very st unstable fundament if if one man was able to, to dr just wipe it away. So I think, I mean, you have your experience in, in, in the U.S. with 9-11. I think your society changed a lot more. Uh, you started two wars. There was, you know, a, a total. It was a, it was a total game change for how to say, like, in the whole world after uh, that terror attack. So uh, this uh, terror act, where Breivik he killed 77 people, it was a political terror act, just as 9/11. Uh, it was targeted towards the government and the youth of the government, uh, and uh, but but it has not. He's not been able to change Norway in any major way. Now, from the moment he was apprehended, from the time of his arrest, Breivik started talking right away about himself as kind of an intellectual. I think he even tells the police in those first moments that he really regards himself as an intellectual who, who's whose normal methodology would be to change the world with the pen. But, but uh, unfortunately, in this particular instance, he's been obliged uh, to use violence instead. And in his first negotiations with the police, and you chronicle this so well in your book, he's, they don't even know he may have other bombs, he may be connected to other people. They don't really know who they're dealing with. And what he's negotiating for is a computer with access to, to Word software so that he continue writing. He has all these ideas about writing. So from, from the beginning, uh, Asna Seierstad, he presented himself as this person who, who was a student and a scholar, right? This is who he's claimed to be all along. Definitely. And he has a high admiration for titles and people with, uh, you know, whether they're generals or professors. And himself, he never finished high school. Uh, and he comes from, you know, he, his, uh, he grew up with uh, the, his single mother who was... Uh, uh, you know, a uh, helping nurse, uh, and later on welfare. So he um, he wants to, first and foremost he wants to be seen and admired, and uh, he was writing things on the internet, but nobody was interested, and not because he was too extreme, but what people told me who you know who was in contact with him on those anti-Islamic sites, they said you know he was just so boring. And that's also the, the manifesto he wrote, uh, big, you know, more than 1,000 pages, 1,500 1, pages. First and foremost, it's like, it's kind of an annoying read. It's like so repetitive. It's so, um, he contradicts himself all the time. Uh, it's, um, it's kind of, um, same the way he appeared in court, he's not a person to engage, uh, engage people. So he's someone who's, 
tried all his life to be someone in different uh, um, areas of life. And then he redresses himself and tries on something else, something new. He ends up then on the far right uh, spectra on the Internet, and they're not interested in, in him. And then he gets the idea that, you know, to be to be read, I want to be read, my manifesto that I've written, what can I do? And that's how he decided on the terror act, at least that's what he said, and he's been calculated, how many people do I need to kill to be read? He'd come to 11, 12, something like that, and then he ended up killing 77. And he called the massacre on the island of these young people, he called, called it his book launch, because if he killed, uh, he, he would be worldwide famous. Right. And actually, at the time of arrest, he didn't even know how many people he'd killed. I think the police asked him how many people he thought he'd killed. And he said 40 or 50. So this is a man. He has these intellectual pretensions. He has this explanation for what he did. He was referred to the young people that he shot as Marxist spawn. He claimed that he had some association with the Knights Templar movement. Um, And so really, he, he is seeking to lead this life of the mind. Now, meanwhile, the Norwegian prison system, which is held out as an example to the world, I've been fascinated to be reading about the Norwegian penal system. And there does seem to be an emphasis on rehabilitation, uh, on um, uh, on adopting measures that are not completely based on punishment. The American prison system, much more oriented towards punishment, much less likely uh, to be able to rehabilitate someone. But I would assume that Breivik is kind of a challenge to all this. I mean, here's a person whose rehabilitation, I would think, is of almost no interest to anyone. I mean, does anybody in Norway care whether uh, Anders uh, Bering Breivik is rehabilitated? Oh, yes, definitely. I think people do care because most people don't think he should ever get back to society. And uh, I don't think he will. Uh, Because the system here, our maximum penalty is 21 years. But if you are a danger to society, that term can be extended every five years uh, until you die. Uh, And there are examples of, of that. Uh, law being used so and I think that he is so manipulative and he's not done as he said you know the only thing he regretted was that he didn't kill more people so he's going to be dangerous uh, until you know the end of his life but um, so he he definitely poses a challenge to the Norwegian prison system because uh, as you said it is based on rehabilitation and he exhausts the system because he's still in uh, solitary confinement so he doesn't meet any other prisoners and now he's, he's sued Norway to, to he's put a case up to the human rights court in a, a court uh, the European Human Rights Court uh, he said he's, he, that he's being tortured and the torture is that he's in isolation for, for too long uh, so he wants to interact with other prisoners and 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 be like a normal normal uh, normal prisoner, but but he can't because he is definitely too dangerous. Uh, in the fact that the 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 it's the 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 prisons are quite open in Norway, uh, and also that he's he's so he's, he he files all those complaints. And I think the fact that you know the fact that he he wanted to study political science is is just too. Uh, it's just to say once again, look at me, I'm here, I'm somebody, uh, and I want uh, attention. 
Of course, for Norway, the response to this is complicated because here you have a man whose goal really was to destroy the system that's in place. He's very critical of the way that the government does things um, now. And, and if anything, would make the argument that the government, to the extent that you can understand his arguments, would make the argument that the government's too tolerant, the government's too kind to certain people. Um, so uh, to treat him punitively, to, to be cruel and harsh with him would be kind of to make his point or to grant his wish, right? In other words, if Norway wants to assert who it really is, it kind of has to treat Breivik the way they say they should want to treat prisoners. Yeah, and that is what they're doing. Uh, I think that they're doing it in a quite good way. Uh, The fact that they don't want to change any laws because of him. So uh, when students there are allowed to be admitted to online courses on the uh, to the university, should we make make an exception for him because he killed seventy seven people, or is he, or should the same terms apply for him as for other uh, prisoners? And then uh, the, the the authorities decided, well, he was admitted, he he finished high school then in prison last year, he he applied last year, then he wasn't admitted admitted because he didn't have the right grades from high school. Now he does, so he is admitted. But he's not going to, uh, he's got, not going to be in contact with any one of the professors or the, the co-students. And uh, the same thing is with his, uh, uh, the fact that he's in, uh, in solitary confinement. It's, it's not, uh, he sees it as an extra punishment. But I think that if he, if he's, He's, the prison guards, they, they have to, I mean, he has to change between prisons because the guards get so exhausted by him because he's so manipulative. And it's, it's small things like he would suddenly ask them about their family, uh, their kids, and they would start talking. And later they're like, oh, it's, it's like it's, he creeps un, under their skin. That's how, what the prison guards were saying. Uh, and and also like uh, he is he's he's shown that he killed seventy seven people like in their face in their necks uh, and if he's able to be in prison with other others let's say he's able to hurt someone even kill someone uh, he, that's a new victory for him so it's like it's um, that that is the challenge so so for that reason he's uh, he's still uh, he's still totally. Uh, probably the longest serving uh, in, in solitary confinement in Norway. You know, Asnus Eierstad, I'm talking to you from Connecticut in the U.S., and we had a few years ago a terrible um, shooting spree at, at an elementary school in Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, also a very difficult thing for, for us to cope with, the death of so many little children. And it was done by a very troubled young man uh, named Adam Lanza. Um, he didn't live through this, uh, so we can't ask him questions. Uh, but... Um, you know, it, it raised questions for us in America as how do, how do we spot this person? There are lots of troubled boys. There are lots of troubled young men. Uh, they don't all turn into Breiviks or to, to Lanzas. And as you, as you pieced together the story of this young man, you must have been asking yourself the question that a lot of Norwegians 
have asked themselves about Breivik. Yeah, how do you spot this person? I mean, he's got a very sad story. He does a lot of the textbook things. He tortures animals when he's a very little boy. Uh, he's uh, he's maladjusted. He's got very strange parents who have very odd values. But that doesn't create a spree killer in most instances. Did it make you wonder if there was there any way to spot this person earlier and understand what he had the potential to be? Well, on different levels, uh, his childhood is very well documented uh, for the fact that he and his mother and his uh, half-sister were taken into a psychiatric ward for for a month in a psychiatric hospital when he was four. Uh, And that was, he came in as as a boy, he didn't smile, he didn't laugh, he didn't play, he didn't look people in the eye, uh, and, and they thought it was something wrong with him. And then uh, after one month at the center, they realized it's nothing wrong with him. It's the dysfunctional relationship to the mother. Who uh, It's kind of a love-hate relationship that he, she would scream to him, I wish you were dead, I wish you were never born, I want to give you away. And then the next uh, moment she would hug him. And uh, So it's like uh, he's, he has no secure attachment in life, and that is one of the main things that, that makes a child develop empathy, a personality. So and a clear recommendation from the psychiatrist uh, is that if this boy is not in proper care, if this boy is not taken away from his mother, we uh, are uh, afraid of serious uh, misdevelopment, abnormal development in him. That did not happen. And of course, now we can say, we, we, you know, what happened? Uh, the psychiatrists were right at the time. And when you look at serials, violent criminals, Almost all of them, they have a bad childhood. Of course, it doesn't mean that if you have a bad childhood, you end up as a violent criminal. But uh, you're likely to have had a bad childhood if you end up as a violent criminal. So, so of course, childhood is uh, very important. And if you, even if you compare to the jihadists, the French killers, for instance, in Paris, I studied their childhood, and it's like a mirror image of Breivik childhood with a dysfunctional mother uh, uh, and uh, wanted to give away the, the, the children. Then the French authorities came to take her children, took three of them, left her with those two uh, who ended up as killers. Uh, and she was out and about just like Breivik's mother, not to blame the mother, but just to say that when we see who become terrorists, we also have to ask the question, what made these people fertile ground for those ideas, the extremist ideas, the ideas of supremacy, the ideas of, uh, of, of giving yourself the right to, to uh, kill others, to decide over life and death? Uh, and so I think childhood is something uh, important to look at. And of course, uh, uh, in the Norwegian case, um, it, it, someone from inside like him, you know, he rented a farm, he did everything properly to be able to buy the fertilizer, to explode the bomb. He, since he was a child, and until 22nd of July, four years ago, there was not a single uh, violent episode with him. Mm-hmm. Since he killed those animals as a small boy. There was, so there was, there was really no indication. So it is it is, of course, difficult, but um, it's um, there is, uh, of course, uh, if if he'd been surveilled, what he bought, what he wrote on the internet, and that taken in together, as you would have done if he was an Islamist, uh, that is also something that was not being done here in Norway. 
All right. Asna Seierstad, the book, One of Us, the story of Anders Breivik and the massacre in Norway. A remarkable book uh, as the anniversary draws near. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you. And we'll be back after this. Well, we're in the middle of a debate right now about what's causing the spike in the murder rate in Hartford uh, and what to do about it. Uh, the city has now asked for some special help from the state of Connecticut. Uh, there's going to be uh, some more announcements, I think, made later today. Mike Lawler is joining us right now. He's under Secretary for Criminal Justice Policy and Planning within uh, the Malloy administration. Uh, and so let's begin, Mike. First of all, welcome to our studios. Thank you. Um, of course, one question we have is... Is this sort of an outlier? I mean, uh, I think uh, Chief Ravella over the weekend uh, in the, the Big Current article used the word unlucky. How unlucky can you get? So um, uh, as we look at this, this is, I mean, we're, we're certainly on track in Hartford to, to be up there around at the end of the year, the 30 homicide mark. You really don't want to be there. Um, one possibility is we're just having a run of bad luck. Is that a useful way to look at it? Uh, well, it's a possibility for sure, but uh, I think we need a better answer than that. And, uh, you know, nationally, there has been a slight uptick in this type of violence around the country. But here in Connecticut, we've not seen that in New Haven or in Bridgeport. Uh, We have seen it in Hartford. And, uh, you know, as you sort of pick this apart, it's it's a challenge to figure out exactly what's driving it. And the main questions are, you know, what do we know? What do we know about the people who are both the victims of these shootings and the shooters? Do they fit a pattern? Uh, is there what are the motives? Are they all similar, or are they just random? And uh, uh, based on our experience elsewhere, it does appear that the majority of this type of violence is uh, almost predictable down to the individual. So that's the that's the that's what we're going to be trying to figure out this afternoon. All right. So one of the questions that's worth asking is what got the rate down, which it had, which had happened. All right. So we had 07, 08, 09, pretty violent time in Hartford. The homicide rate, rate is up over 30, I think, in, in each of those years. And then it went down. Now, one one thing you could look at would be, in fact, the shooting task force, which was sort of a multi-level, multi-agency effort. First of all, explain to people what the shooting task force is. Well, you know, uh, the shooting task force is analogous to like community policing, where it means different things to different people and uh, different police departments have a quote unquote shooting task force and they have slightly different tactics and strategy. But not having said that, uh, shootings and crime generally have been trending down for at least the last 25 years. And uh, the, the, the murders themselves, you know, in Connecticut, we've seen Two years in a row, we we're at a historic low here. Uh, we we're 86 last year and the year before that, which is very low. Typically, we'd be way over 100. Um, and so uh, trying to sort of pick this apart in Hartford or anywhere else is hard. But the more time that goes by, the more it looks like a, a, a trend and not simply a bad luck. But, I mean, then you look for best practices, right? Correct. So, you know, w- what are the things that lower murder rates? Well, it depends on the type of murder you're talking about. In this case, we're talking about urban violence, almost exclusively young African-American men shooting each other. Uh, That being the case, uh, you know, uh, the the project longevity type approach that we've been using in Hartford, Bridgeport, and New Haven is all about identifying who are the most likely uh, victims or shooters, you know, based on their history, criminal record, they're on probation, they're on parole, they're in prison, whatever, and, and reaching out to those as individuals and basically offering them a carrot and a stick. 
Uh, that has proven to be very effective. It certainly seems to be working in, in Bridgeport and New Haven. Um, and, and, but also a big part of this is rebuilding the trust in the community because if, if the community doesn't trust the police, if they feel uh, the police are sort of an army of occupation, something like that, then you see this breakdown in law and order. And one of the consequences of that would be shootings uh, um, uh, and things of this nature. In New Haven, where I live, you know, they've done a very good job of rebuilding that trust between the community and the police department. It's not perfect. It gets better every day. And I think one of the benefits of doing that is you see the, the shootings decrease. Um, the, the city, the mayor of the city, um, asked Mayor Zagara asked for help, more bodies, basically, from the state. The governor kind of came back with, well, maybe not exactly bodies. Let's we need to talk, right? We need to talk about what your real needs are. What did he mean? What was what was his what was the meaning of his his answer back to the mayor's request? Well, the governor said, uh, and that's this is what they'll be discussing this afternoon. Is if it's specific resources you need, we'll make them available. But what we want to know is what is your strategy? How are you going to use these resources to respond to the? not just to, the, to solve the cases where people have gotten shot, but also to prevent these shootings in the future. How are you going to rebuild relations with the community? How are you going to reach out to community advocates who are going to help you do your job? How are you going to better focus your efforts on the, the highest risk people? That kind of thing. And so uh, I'm quite confident that's that will be the focus of the discussion this afternoon. So, I mean, at some point, I mean, for example, Chief Ravella, at uh, one point was quoted as saying that he's, I, mean, I think, a little bit over 400 right now in staffing. He feels like he should be up around 500. Um, you look a lot at, you spend a lot of time thinking about criminal justice policy, about what works and what doesn't work. Is it a numbers game? Does it, does it, is it, is it the number or is it the efficacy of the police department? I suppose it can be both, but. Well, I, I mean, the, the, the fact that police are just doing a much better job than they ever were before has helped reduce the crime rate. The community policing nationally has had a big impact on things. Uh, the, the number of police officers is also important. I think you've seen in New York City recently, uh, Mayor de Blasio has tried to bring on board a, a, a significant influx of new officers to basically flood the zone because that, that has a significant deterrent effect. And, and some of the police chiefs I've spoken to say in a situation like this, it's as good to have, have as many uniform bodies out on the street as possible, even, you know, firefighters, uh, anything to, to just have a visibility because that has a reassuring uh, uh, effect. Um, so uh, more police officers are good. There's no question about it. But the same budgetary constraints that can, uh, confront Hartford confront other cities in our state and uh, – you know, it, it does seem like there's an anomaly happening here in Hartford at the moment. Well, when somebody asks you for something, when a mayor asks a governor for help, I mean, that sort of opens up a channel of communication and it also opens the door for a set of questions. And I guess my question would be, how specific do you want to get or do you need to get, you meaning the Malloy administration, with the city of Hartford? I mean, one possibility would be to sit down with Chief Ravella, Deputy Chief Foley, and say, all right, well, you got 400-odd police officers. What, what do they do? How do you use them? What are these people doing over here? You know, how come how come you keep needing people from our our state force to, to help you out? How are you, in fact? I mean, are the conversations going to get that specific? Well, today, I mean, as I said earlier, it's going to all be about what strategy are you going to employ to, to affect the shootings, right? And uh, um, the uh, it's not just how many police officers you have. It's what they're doing, who they're targeting, what, what strategy, what tactics are they using? And this is sort of the community uh, policing model. It is important to emphasize that uh, – 
the the state and the feds have been very major partners with Hartford and New Haven and Bridgeport for as long as I can remember in dealing with this stuff. Um, so it's not like all of a sudden we're going to add some state resources that weren't there before. I mean, the probation, parole, the prosecutors, the state police have all been very directly involved, as have the FBI, ATF, DEA, U.S. Attorney's Office. They'll, they will all be at this meeting this afternoon. And, you know, we're doing a lot. The mayor has asked us to consider doing some more. I think the governor's open to that. But we really want to know what what is the plan? What's the strategy? How are you going to use these resources? It seemed to me standing on the sidelines and not really having, you know, tremendous amount of access to what was happening, that when the state and federal government got more involved with the shooting task force, that, in fact, that was kind of around the time the rate started to go down. Um, and so did the involvement stay at the same level? I mean, has has I mean, the state has its own budget problems, as well we know. Um, did the state have to cut back any of its involvement? Could that have any relationship to what we're seeing now? Well, you know, there's a specific line item in the state budget for the, the shooting task force. Mm-hmm. It has essentially remained flat for four years. So I guess you can say it should have gone up, but it's it's been it's been stable. It hasn't been reduced. Um the number, uh, uh, and in addition to what's allocated there, um, there's probation officers, parole officers, Department of Corrections, intelligence officers, uh, state uh, prosecutor staff, and state police are embedded in the Hartford Task Force. So, I mean, above and beyond the line item appropriation, there's a lot of uh, 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 collaboration. And, you know, for example, Commissioner Semple at DOC, I mean, he has a very strong relationship with Chief Ravella. I mean, I talk to Chief Ravella and Deputy Chief Foley all the time. I mean, we have a good relationship, and and there's not been any uh, antagonism that I that I've noticed. I, I mean, it's a very healthy relationship. The question is now, given the, the the reality of what's actually happening today, how do we respond to the reality that we're seeing today? And and that's the strategy decision we got to have. It seems to me a program like Project Longevity, and we're going to talk about it a little bit in New Haven with Paul Bass in our final segment today, but. You know, I mean, if you put me in charge of it, it wouldn't be very effective, right? I would get all these people together who are high risk as shooters, high risk as victims. I wouldn't really know what to say to them. It seems to me that's the kind of program that really does depend a lot on the personnel involved in it. They've got to really know. I mean, it's one thing to get those people into a room. First of all, it's one thing to identify them. That's got to be an art as much as it is a science, you know, who those people are. And then getting them into rooms and explaining the situation to them and trying to get them to make the good choice instead of the bad choice, that's an art as well as a science, too. I mean, it, it strikes me anyway. It matters a lot who does that program. There's no question about that. And, and you know, there's, there's two aspects to it, as, as you pointed out. Number one, you got to figure out who's your target audience here. And it's uh, we have so much information about people coming in and out of the criminal justice system these days. It's Now we can data mine it. And, and if we can figure out what the profile is of a, a likely shooting victim or shooter, then we can work backwards from there. Um, and then what approach you're actually going to take once you've identified these people. And the, the Project Longevity, the theory behind it is, you know, both carrot and stick. On the one hand, if you guys who we've decided are high risk want to ha- ask for some help, we will make it available to you on a priority basis. On the other hand, you are all in groups and gangs. We know this. We know which groups you're in. We know who you're feuding with. And if we, if it turns out that your group is responsible for shooting and killing somebody, we will come against the entire group on the theory of group accountability. And we won't make up charges, but, you know, if you follow people around, uh, you can, you know, whether it's a violation of parole or probation or catch them with drugs or catch them with a gun, uh, all of those are, you know, could be serious violations and go from there. So that's the theory. And uh, it, it started in New Haven. 
seems to be working very well there. Next, it was begun in Bridgeport, and the third city to come online was Hartford. And and so that can only be part of a strategy, right? I mean, it's not the, the solution to all of these problems, but what it it, it focuses on is the relationship with the community. And the people who deliver the message I was just describing are not just cops and prosecutors. It's clergy. It's the parents of the very victims that, that have been shot and killed on the streets of Hartford, Bridgeport, and New Haven, uh, and, and other community groups, uh, service providers, clergy uh, who are directly involved. Because, you know, someone like me is not going to have a lot of credibility with these uh, young African-American men who are already involved in the criminal justice system. But when they see someone who looks a lot like their grandmother and their preacher and, and community leaders from their community, uh, it is the message is heard differently. And I'll give you one quick example. There's a woman, um, Alicia Caballero, I think her name is, in, in New Haven. And her son was shot and killed eight or nine years ago. And she made a presentation on one of these call-ins. And what she said at the end of it, she said, I'm looking at you guys, and she's standing in front of them in a very emotional presentation. I'm looking at you guys, and some of you guys are snickering and rolling your eyes when I'm talking, but I want you to know that we are on a team, and she points over to the cops and the prosecutors, and we are all together in this, and we are asking you to stop this, and we are promising that if you don't, you will be incarcerated for as long as possible, and I will be the first in line to say that should happen if you guys don't stop the shooting. That had to be a very powerful statement. Mike Lawler, you've got a lot of credibility with me. You've helped me make good choices instead of bad choices. Undersecretary for Criminal Justice Policy and Planning within the Malloy administration, thanks for being with us today. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Anna Geismar, Hallie St. Germain, and Allison Ehrenreich. The part of Bill Curry was played by Idris Elba. For show pages, articles, and photos, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Tomorrow, a show about advice. Now, back to Colin. Well, we've gone from Oslo to Hartford, and now we're going to New Haven. Although these segments kind of are tied together by notions of crime and punishment, or crime anyway, if not punishment. Paul Bass is here with us. He's the editor of the New Haven Independent. A number of odd things have been going on in New Haven. We'll sort of go through them one by one with you. Paul, I guess we'll start with uh, the discovery near the State Street uh, train station of of these severed limbs. First, first legs and then arms, correct? Correct. What do we know about this so far? We know that in one location high above the train tracks in New Haven on State Street. Somebody dumped two human legs. We know that two blocks away, up an embankment on the other side of the train tracks, somebody dumped two human arms in a plastic bag. They were found about, about eight hours away from each other last Wednesday. They'd been there for some time. It is not a fact that they came from the same person. Obviously, people figure it is, including investigators. However, they were in different states of decomposition, which could be for a lot of reasons. And um, they were disposed in different ways. The legs were just thrown under this brush on the side of a fence where homeless people sleep. The other, the arms, had been left in a bag dumped down a hillside. So that's um, the, the state chief medical examiner has the limbs and is looking for any kind of DNA evidence. Because, Colin, at this point, 
They don't even know if these appendages come from a male or a female. They don't know the race, the age. So they're hearing from all over, the police are hearing from all over the country of cases where torsos were found. It's kind of a cob and it's made for a lot of jokes, unfortunately, like kind of sick humor in town, but also just a lot of curiosity. They don't even know if this is a murder. They don't believe the murder, if it was a murder, took place at those locations. They believe the limbs were deposited but they don't know anything else. It could very well have not happened in New Haven. Who knows? And it'll be a little while anyway before we get the, the before the medical examiner turns this stuff around, right? It takes longer to do the DNA than it does on television. True. The estimate was to be a minimum of 10 days from last Wednesday. And that then what happens is you check the DNA against a database of other victims as well as you look in files for cases involving victims of the same kind of uh, description. Now, in the early reporting of this story, we're talking to Paul Bass from the New Haven Independent. There was some suggestion by some people that, in fact, they had reported the existence of these legs a day or two before their actual discovery. And one of the great things about the New Haven Independent, boy, your comment section is so interesting and very informative. And people mm-hmm. who actually know things are there on the comment section, including David Hartman, who's the spokesperson for the New Haven police. But then other police uh, and dispatchers and all kinds of people seem to jump on the comment threads, too. So it's actually interesting to read. Now, was it ultimately decided that that was not the case, that when when the, the first report of the legs led to the discovery of the legs? Right. Well, we only know, the only fact we know, because at first we found someone at the scene right after they discovered who said, here, my husband has photos of him. He's talking to the police right now. We told him about this days ago. And the reason there was so much discussion on the independent is because there have been problems with our 911 call center. We recently had cases where a woman called in, for instance, that there was a burglar, she thinks, in the house. And it took cops 45 minutes to get there, but that wasn't because the cops were slow. The dispatcher had understood the call differently. It wasn't put out as a priority call to the cops, and the cops actually got the message 41 minutes later. There was another case where a Yale student um, stabbed a friend after drinking early in the night and early in the morning and jumped from to his death in Taft Hotel. And when we played that 911 recording on the um, Independent, it seemed like the dispatcher was having a hard time understanding the person calling in distress and actually being able to figure out what was going on. So in this case, there was concern was another problem with the dispatch center. However, the only rec- there was no record of a call to 911 about this. Two days before the discovery, a person in the vicinity told a walking beat cop right around there, there are some legs. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't say exactly where, and then he didn't go with them. And um, obviously some commenters said, geez, that means the person was involved. Who knows? But the officers and firefighters went in the whole general area and couldn't find it. It was actually, I I walked there, it was actually a a tough place to find anything. The brush was very thick, tiny plot of land, high above tree stacks, against the fence. They actually had to spend some time last Wednesday cutting back the brush to find what else was there, which didn't turn out to be anything else suspicious. So it seems like, as far as we could tell, this was not a case of missed signals. And then once that first report was out about the legs, then people started talking about what they've been smelling. So there's somebody who was near the second site who lived near there on where the arms were found and said, hey, I just heard about this officer. He went up to an officer on the street. I think I smelled something mm-hmm. down there. And then they uh, they got a rookie cop to climb the fence, and he said, oh, boy, this does look suspicious. And actually, one of the arms, they couldn't even tell it was two arms at first. They didn't want to dis- disturb the bag of the evidence till the medical examiner came. So it looked like only one arm. And then when they got it up to Farmington and opened the bag, it was very decomposed, but they found the second arm without hands. 
you know, uh, the things that are said on comment threads have absolutely no real status. Although mm-hmm. uh, the the point was an interesting one, which was that these legs were difficult to see. They were concealed uh, from from easy sight. Uh, it took a quite a bit of hunting around just to be able to, to see where they were, as you're suggesting, and that this guy had come up to the police and, and said there are legs over there and then refused to go with them. It it it, it is sort of interesting. How did he know there were legs there? Well, anyway, that, yeah. that little Well, guy. I think that there are homeless people sleeping there. When I went there, I found a, a cushion someone had and food and, you know, snacks. There was even, I even found on the ground after the police were gone, a portable toothbrush, lanyards, you know, definite signs of one of the places homeless people were sleeping. This doesn't seem to fit any kind of any other pattern of anything that's going on in New Haven. And, you know, in the previous segment, we were talking a little bit about the problems of Hartford. Hartford has this escalating murder rate at a time when, for the most part, cities around the Northeast are seeing a deceleration of murder. One thing I wanted to ask you a little bit about is New Haven is one of the places that has tried Project Longevity. This is an approach that... It actually looks a little bit like what used to happen on Hill Street Blues when the police would call in all the gang members and mm-hmm. kind of talk to them before the violence started. Frank Ferrillo, he yeah. really knew how to talk to those guys. Right, Frank Ferrillo would bring them in. So, um, But this is sort of what's happening, right? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Talk to the people who are gang leaders or people who might be involved in that kind of retaliatory violence. Explain to them what your expectations are um, and try to get them involved in preventing the violence. So, so how's that worked out in New Haven? Well, first of all, Colin, Project Longevity is in Hartford, too. So murders and shootings which are a more important indication, are up there. In New Haven, they are not up. We've had seven murders this year. We had seven last year. More importantly, we had 32 shootings year-to-date this year. We had 35 year-to-date. More importantly than that, and the more important statistic here predates Project Longevity. In 2011, we hit a spike. We had 34 murders, which is you know down more than 65% gradually. We've had drops every year in shootings, murder, every kind of violent crime for five years. For, at that point in 2011, we reinstituted community policing. Project Longevity, you could argue, is a kind of community policing. In fact, it's unclear whether Project Longevity has, it's hard to know what to attribute a decline in violent crime right. to. We have about four or five factors here that may or may not be. So the U.S. Attorney, Deidre Daly, says, you got to credit Project Longevity because your violence has gone down. Well, it's gone up in Hartford, and New Haven was the city where Project Longevity had the biggest problem. They hired a director who didn't work out. The first year they were spinning the wheels, they canned them. There was a lot of talk about how they didn't really have the right people or they weren't making an impact. And that may or may not be true, but everyone involved agrees it was messed up for the entire first year. And it was only in the last few months they got a very good director, a retired detective named Spacey Spell, who's a community organizer and has links with all the kids already, has lived in the neighborhood forever. So he's just getting it started. They had no data on whether the people they brought in sought help or had recidivism. And let me just take a step back so our listeners know what Project Longevity is. This is about identifying the small number of people who are most likely to shoot someone next or to be shot next. That's based on their affiliations with groups. It's usually gangs. It's not always gangs. Sometimes it's about drug dealing, and just as often it's about really dumb gripes over social media about female jealousy or just dissing a neighborhood but in any case that's when they bring the groups in on these so-called call-ins and they say you have two choices we're gonna if any of you commits another shooting we're coming down on all of you for everything you're doing wrong we have the evidence we're going to use federal charges here's the prosecutor here are the pictures i was at one the other day here are the pictures of all the people who just went away for a long time but we care about you and we want you to have the ability to go straight 
and we have all sorts of help we're going to give you. And here's a cell phone number of the person you're going to call who you're looking at right now. And you could get job training. You can get job, help with an apartment. You can get um, referrals to jobs. You can get health care, whatever you need. And often they don't go for that help, although in the latest call-in about half the, or close to half the people did make an initial call. So it's obviously a great idea. Governor Malloy has started in all the cities in New Haven. But the murder rate's gone up, not just murder, because it's important not to just look at a murder mm-hmm. rate, because that's a small number of violent incidents on, in these smaller cities, and one triple shooting or domestic violence um, spree could change it. But it's the shootings, the violent crime is important. It has gone down for New Haven all these years. And there are a number of other factors, such as they do have good gang intelligence at the local level, and there has been some community policing. So the, there have been some major busts that got gangs off the street and that, you know, they come back later, some of them, and they get replaced by new people coming up. That often does give a reprieve, at least for the short to medium term. We have revived community placing. It's not perfect, but it has had an impact, in my opinion, more walking beats, more working with community agencies like Yale Child Study Center. And that's an important thing in New Haven, which was um, when a kid sees violence, either in violence or a parent gets shot or a friend, they get to know a cop and a social worker from from the Yale Child Study Center who deal with them about the effects of violence. I believe, and I can't prove it, that's the reason the first wave of community policing in New Haven in the 1990s had such a huge drop by early 2000s before we got rid of community policing under John Stefano, and it all came back again. So um, I believe there was a whole generation of people who were dealt with and got help because we were down to eight murders for the whole year by the early 2000s, then it went back up to 34, and now we start community policing again. There are also trends beyond our control. Yale New Haven Hospital is very good at keeping people alive. There was a guy shot this morning on Route 80 in New Haven, and I was he's shot in the head, but he's going to be fine. I was told if he had just stepped two steps to the right, he would have been dead, and three more steps to the other side, he would have not even been hit at all. So there's that kind of fate when you're talking about that small number of murders, but it's still a lot. But we are definitely got violence under control here compared to other cities. we got a lot of way to go because there's still too much of it in the poorer neighborhoods. We're talking to Paul Bass, the editor of the New Haven Independent. Now, ironically, or paradoxically maybe, um, the city was also uh, getting ready to use a building uh, to house some staff to administer a, a federal grant to reduce violence in New Hallville. This is a, a building on Dixwell Avenue called the Construction Work- Workforce Initiative Training Center had, had inhabited it. And, um, well, I'll, I'll kind of let you pick up the story from there, but basically what the city found when they went in there uh, to, to take over this building and use it for a different purpose after this other program had kind of been kicked out, they found a pretty shocking scene, right? Yeah, well, this, is, this building is the site of a corruption investigation, which may or may have turned out to have shown corruption. It's a building that was trashed years ago, and the city started a quasi-public agency, which immediately puts alarm bells off. Anytime you make it quasi-public, the money's not being watched. And they got all these unskilled laborers, and they taught them pre-apprenticeship skills like painting, plumbing, and they fixed this building up to be the school. Mm-hmm. Then the school got closed down that, at that location last fall because there was a, a scandal they're investigating about whether there's been millions of state dollars been tracked or not and how they've been spent. There weren't not, Form 990s filed. Those are the tax forms you're supposed to file as a not-for-profit. There were all sorts of questions raised which haven't been proved. But the night it was closed down and the director was put on leave because they had a person working for the city who also ran the agency because it was quasi-public, that night we happened to get a video of them clearing the whole place out with U-Hauls. 
And they said, that's because we put the stuff in. It belongs to our agency, not the city. And this was a city official talking. So then months later, as you said, the, the building's been lying vacant. It's been locked. The city couldn't even get into their own building because the people who had it before were kicked out, still had it locked. This is a, you know, you, you're familiar with these kind of stories, Colin. Yes. So the city goes in, they break the lock and the alarm goes off and the people who were there before show up and they've been watching anyone who comes in. So then they come in and the whole place is trashed. Everything's gone. All the fixtures are, are ripped out. The walls are in pieces and even the toilets are gone and concrete is poured into the um, pipes. And so it looks like they're not going to be moving that anti-violence program from Dolphin Lane soon. But the question is now the mystery is it's not as juicy a mystery as whose human arms and legs those were, but who poured the concrete down the drain and what does this have to do with the corruption investigation? Right. And it does seem as though that this particular group and and, and uh, I guess some family members of this group, um, they, they did sort of they kind of controlled the site until – until the city managed to, quote, unquote, break into what is effectively its, its own building, right? So That is correct. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you don't want to put two and two together and definitely announce it's four, but that it does seem rather likely that, that somehow or other the, the damage to this building has something to do with the ejection or, or closing anyway. of this. And it also kind of raises a question, which is why did the city wait so long? In other words, you get these people out. You right. decided you don't want them around anymore. That's in March. And right. then you kind of let the, city, the building sit there under their control until July. It seems like a long time for a city property uh, that has basically reverted to the city to not really physically revert to the city. I do. And I think one reason is that they didn't yet have something they were going to do with it. Because as always in cities, people fight about every pot of money that comes. So that grant for anti-violence, <laughs> there's been an extended fight about whether to even take the million dollars to fight violence. And there are three groups fighting about it in the neighborhood. And they're fighting with City Hall, which is trying to manipulate it. And so they were even busy with that. And, um, and also because there's an ongoing corruption investigation taking place about the agency, there wasn't any kind of rush. Well, uh, maybe a lesson has been learned about that. Anyway, uh, Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent. Uh, great to talk to you. Thank you, Colin, as always. Uh, that's The Scramble. Thanks to everybody who helped out, especially Tucker Ives and Kion Wolf. We'll be back tomorrow with that show about advice. My advice is to listen. <laughs>